So Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Amen. Let's uh, read uh, again uh, from, first of all, Malachi, chapter 2, verses 17 to 37, and chapter 4, uh, verses 5 and 6. Malachi 2, 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, 
How shall we return? Behold, Malachi 4. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then from Mark 1, 1 to 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt round his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Thank you, Sam. And um, please keep your Bibles open. It's Mark 1. Uh, and let me again add my welcome, a, a particular welcome if you are uh, kind of new to Christian stuff or, or just visiting us this Sunday to look in on on what we do as Christians. Um, uh, you've come on a good day, actually, because uh, we are starting this new series of talks, um, and we're starting them in Mark's Gospel, which is one of the kind of original accounts of Jesus' life, full of eyewitness evidence from um, his, his disciples, from the Apostle Peter. Um, and it, it's a great place to start, because Jesus Christ is the absolute center of Christianity, of church, of the Christian life. So if you're wondering whether to become a Christian, if you're looking in and thinking, is there anything in this, or is it just a load of religious nonsense? Well, one place to start, that fundamental question, who is Jesus? And actually, I'm hoping this short series will be a huge encouragement to those of us who are already followers of Jesus as well, especially if you've been through uh, the, the last number of talks in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, this series we've just finished. Uh, we, we've been seeing, seeing in that series uh, the Apostle Paul kind of bending over backwards to get the news of Jesus out. He says he goes through all sorts of expense and cultural discomfort so that, might, so that people might hear of Jesus. And then in, in those central midweek um, sessions, remember the 19th is at the Faith Mission, in those central midweek sessions together, we're going to be thinking about how to do it practically, how do you actually go about it, but alongside all the effort and all the careful thinking about how we engage with our world, it's worth stepping back and just thinking, why would we want to? 
Why is the message we have such good news? When Paul explains what drives him, why he's so excited, why he was willing to voluntarily give up his rights, use his freedoms to get the message out, he says he wanted to share the blessings of the gospel with as many people as possible. And so, as the uh, days get shorter and the nights get colder, what a great thing to step back and just have a good long look at Jesus Christ, the heart of the gospel, the heart of that good news message. And given that the final words of 1 Corinthians uh, 8 to 11 verse 1 were, imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, well, great to have a good look at Jesus and see what his priorities were. So that's the plan until kind of early December, a good long look at Jesus from Mark's gospel. Why don't I lead us in prayer, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your word. Thank you for a solid rock. Thank you for a light to our path. Thank you for hope in the darkness. And we pray now that as we look at the Lord Jesus, you would show us your glory in his face. Shine your light in our hearts, we pray, to know him better, to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll see there's an outline on the back of the handout which will show you where we're going. And I've put at the top that you can wait a long time for good news. I know there are actually quite a number of people in in our church family who have been waiting for news painfully waiting. It might be news of the test results or the exam results. It might be waiting and waiting for a diagnosis, waiting and waiting for the results of a workplace investigation. If that is you, and I'm also aware it's not always good news when it comes, if that is you, please tell us so we can pray for you. It's a wonderful thing that a church family can share each other's burdens. Actually, even if you're not going through that personally, privately yourself, I guess we've all been going through it kind of collectively, haven't we, as a nation? Last three years, we've been waiting. Sorry to bring up Brexit. Seems to happen every week, but then that's the news, isn't it? And ever since that referendum, we've been basically waiting, waiting for good news, really waiting for any news, any kind of movement, any way out of the mess, any, any light in the tunnel of confusion and disunity, way out of the national uncertainty, the political paralysis. It's funny, isn't it? Week after week, there's always some breaking news as if the next step's about to happen, and then it's hard to tell, was it really news at all? Certainly, is it good news? So, general election coming up, is that going to change anything? If it does, will it change it for the better? Why am I bringing up that painful subject of Brexit news? Well, because that's the kind of category we should put Mark chapter 1 in. News. Just have a look at how Mark starts. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word gospel is a news word. We should be thinking, you know that kind of breaking news banner, the red flashy banner that's on the BBC News website sometimes? That's the kind of word it is. Gospel. Big news. Great news. Good news. Right at the heart of Christianity... But really, the heartbeat of the Bible is long-awaited news breaking. 
We're going to see what the news is in a moment, but I do want to make a kind of big deal that this is news. It's not, that is, in, your, in our kind of mental categories, don't have it in the kind of advice category. It's not advice. It's news. It's about something that actually happens. Why am I saying that? Well, because I know that nowadays gospel has become a kind of religious word, you know. Um, Kanye's released a gospel album, or people are seeing gospel music. It's become associated with Christianity, but back in the day... It was just a news word. So it was used for big victories in battle. It was used when a new ruler was born. Um, so Caesar Augustus, for example, the Roman ruler, um, there's one calendar inscription that on his birthday says this, this signals the beginning of gospel for the world. Good news. Gospel. It's the emperor's birthday. And Mark picks up that word to say, if you think a Roman emperor's birthday is a big deal, if you think a, a new prime minister or a way out of Brexit would be a big deal, and of course it would, here's even bigger news. Here's the news they'll still be talking about in 2,000 years' time. The great news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of which means the rest of Mark, as we read it, it's not just a story, it's not entertainment. It's not just advice. It's not just kind of a, a self-help guide. Christianity is not, is not just kind of, if you fancy it, this might help you get on in life. Um, here's a little insight into me, uh, this, the kind of geekier side of me. Uh, for a while, I, I loved a website called lifehacker.com. Um, it, it tells you how to kind of maximize the efficiency of your productivity in all sorts of silly ways. Um, for example, if you want to organize your, um, your mobile phone charger cables, apparently the hands of Lego figurines are just the right size. So you can glue them to your table and they'll hold the, the cable. Um, also, dry spaghetti can be used as a wick for lighting candles. It saves you literally seconds of time and a small amount of danger. But it's, kind of, it's just trivial, isn't it? It's just kind of fun. It's, take it or leave it. If you can't be bothered, fine, just choose another website. The Bible's not like that. It's really important, actually. The Bible is not like that. This is not, here's one way to live if you fancy it. Here's a bit of advice. It might improve things slightly. No. This is news. It's not life coaching. It's news. Actual events. Things that have happened have been written down. It's not the kind of editorial pages. It's the front page, the headlines. And what's the news about? Well, verse 1, it's news fundamentally not about church or rituals or worldviews or ethics or lifestyles. Fundamentally, it's news about a person, Jesus. Everything flows out of him. It's why I said if you are looking into Christianity, you should actually be looking into Christ. Who is he is the question. Actually, Christians have to keep grappling with that question. I wonder if there's anyone here at the moment who's finding an aspect of what the Bible teaches quite hard, hard to accept, hard to obey. The fundamental question is, who is Jesus? See, if he's just a man, just another man with just another set of views, well, he can be safely ignored or updated. The fundamental question is, who is Jesus? One of the weaknesses of a book like um, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion is it spends so little time engaging with the central question, who is Jesus? Well, Mark's answer to that question is pure and simple, that Jesus is God's 
king, God's saviour king, indeed God's son himself. Just look at the titles he's given in that first verse. Um, Christ here, I've said this before, but it's not Jesus' surname. It's not the Johnson bit of Boris Johnson. It's the prime minister bit. Boris, the prime minister. Nicola, the first minister. It's that bit. Jesus, the Christ, it's his title. What does the title mean? Well, much more than prime minister, though that's the right kind of ballpark. Christ, it's just the the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, which you may have heard lots of times. Messiah is literally the anointed one, the chosen one, the one whom God has chosen as his king, his promised savior king. And as you read through the Old Testament, you see that this king, is this, this Messiah is going to be a big deal. That first psalm that we opened with and sang is a psalm about the Messiah, the king, the Christ, the king who will rule the nations and bless the nations, the king who will put things right. That's the first bit of news. Jesus is the Christ. And what's the second title? Well, Son of God. Interestingly, Son of God is another title used of kings, uh, both in the Bible and in the wider culture. So in Psalm 2, the, the, the king, God's king, is described as his son. But again, in wider culture, that was used as well. So those Roman Caesars, again, uh, who proclaimed their kind of birthdays as great news, gospel, they also described themselves as Son of God. It's fair to say humility wasn't a huge strength of the, <laughs> of the Roman dynasties. Uh, in fact, the imperial cult kind of demanded worship of Caesar. At which point, the first line of Mark's gospel, written in that culture, is the most extraordinary counterclaim, isn't it? Rome may claim to be king of the world. The Caesars may claim to be the ones giving good news to everyone. But actually, the real king of the world is here. The eternal son of God is here. And his name is Jesus. It's absolutely extraordinary claim. It's even more extraordinary by the end of the gospel when Jesus dies. And there's a Roman centurion who watches it all happen. And he looks up and says, surely this is the son of God hanging on a tree. Extraordinary that that could be a greater king than Caesar. But then here we are talking about Jesus. And Caesar's just an illustration. Huge news. Huge news that we'll see in a moment demands a response. But before we get there, let's think, why is it such good news? And to get this, we do need to kind of realize how long people had been waiting for this news. See, this is a nation that's been under the cosh for a long time. Uh, Israel was a nation that had been repeatedly conquered. They were longing to be set free, currently under the Romans' occupation. And God had been promising through the Bible that one day there would be a great dawning of hope, a great solution. That's why we read Isaiah and Malachi and prophets hundreds of years before, promising one day a rescue would come. In fact, one day God would come to rescue them. The last people had heard about that kind of rescue was 400 years ago. That last prophet, Malachi, said God is going to turn up one day in the future. He is going to come and do justice, purify his people, sort things out. But the generations came and the generations went. Still no answer, still no news, still no solution. 
I mean, think about that. We can't even stand Brexit limbo for three years. They're on 400 and counting. And they didn't just need political solutions. I mean, Isaiah was really clear about that. Sam mentioned it earlier. That he said, behind all those daily issues, the sickness, the conquest, the social injustice, the poverty, the exile, the suffering, even the death, behind all of that pain lay the biggest problem of all, a broken relationship with the living God. The Bible calls this sin, this big problem. It's putting ourselves on the throne rather than God. It's rejecting God, saying, I'm going to live my life my way, not yours. And it puts us out of step with our maker, makes us enemies of our creator, not friends. And I, Isaiah was really clear, that's the biggest, deepest problem in Israel. It's the biggest, deepest problem in the whole world. And yet one day there'd be a solution. One day the light would break. One day God himself would step in and gather his people. It's quite a claim, actually. I think until the first Christmas came, it would be a claim. It was hard to believe. Extraordinary idea that God would turn up in person. But then Jesus arrived. And to make sure we didn't miss it, God said there would be a messenger beforehand, a warm-up guy before the Lord appeared, a kind of herald, if you like, a kind of prophetic town crier, you know, those, hear ye, hear ye, something's happening behind me, someone to announce his imminent arrival. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? If God's going to turn up, you want to make it kind of obvious uh, so that you don't miss it. And look at the quotes in verses 2 and 3, which are all about that. Um, They're from Isaiah and Malachi combined. Let me read them. Verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Notice in those promises there are two characters. There's the messenger, the warm-up guy, the forerunner, the town crier, and then there's the one he's announcing, the Lord, God himself, turning up. It is just what we read in Malachi. See the pattern? Messenger first, then Lord. Town crier, then God himself. Though actually town crier isn't the right description, is it? Look again at at the the verses. I mean, the one thing we know actually is they're not in the town. Uh, It's a voice in the wilderness. Uh, Malachi said it would be an Elijah figure. And then John the Baptist appears, verse 4, in the wilderness. And actually, he's wearing the kind of clothes, the weird clothes that Isaiah wore. That's why verse 6 gives us so much about his strange diet and his strange clothing. It's Elijah-like clothing. So here is a voice, a preacher in the wilderness. And what's his message? Well, get ready for God's arrival. I wonder if anyone here is already being reminded to get ready for Christmas. Uh, Perhaps if you're one of the less organized presence finders in your family, as I am, there's just the occasional reminder of, you know, it's not that long. You might need to actually prepare for what's coming around the corner. Um, Likewise, Brexit, I've lost count of how many slots I've heard on the radio telling me to get ready for Brexit on the 31st of October. Turns out, not only did we not really know how to get ready because we didn't know what kind of Brexit would be, it didn't even happen on the 31st of October. And yet... This news is absolutely certain. Get ready, 
God's about to turn up. And it's really clear, isn't it? It's clear on how you prepare for God's arrival. Well, John's message, verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming, here it is, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, being baptized by him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. There it is again. John was really clear. Just like Isaiah was really clear. And Malachi was really clear. John was really clear. The issue is sin. That's the deep problem. If you want to get ready to meet God, that's the issue. Sin is the deep problem. Even, interestingly, for these native Jews, these people of the promise, even for them, they needed a washing, a dealing with sin. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If a holy God is going to come to his temple, to his people... Well, of course, it's high time to seek forgiveness, to do a U-turn from the way you've been living. That's, by the way, what repentance means. It just means do a U-turn, turn around, get washed clean, ready to meet your maker. Now, of course, water itself can't wash off sin. It's not that simple. It's not that kind of surface level. It's deeper than that. But verse 8, John promises that Jesus, the one coming later, will be able to wash us internally, wash us not just with water, but with the internal work of the Holy Spirit. John is a picture of the work that Jesus will do. And notice too, verse 7, of how John says that the one who's coming next is much, much, much bigger than him. Verse 7, he preached saying, after me comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized with water, he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then, verse 9, immediately in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. There it is, unmistakably obvious I mean, just look at the number of witnesses, even in a short introductory paragraph, the number of witnesses who are lined up to point at Jesus. There's confirmation from Isaiah and Malachi with the kind of pattern, messenger then Lord, and the place, wilderness. There's confirmation from John the Baptist, the kind of last prophet pointing to Jesus. There's confirmation from the Holy Spirit visibly descending from heaven. There's confirmation from the Father, the voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son. It is like there was an old National Lottery advert, and I don't encourage participating in the National Lottery, um, but actually they had a good advert, which I wish someone else had had, which was the big hand saying, it's you. Do you remember that? There's hands coming from every direction pointing at Jesus. It's him. So, don't worry too much at the latest Caesar being born. He is the actual ruler of the world. God the Son, the maker of the world, turning up in person, visiting his people. Finally, this is the breaking news they've long waited for. There's a prayer late in Isaiah that goes like this. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down to make known your name to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. That prayer had been prayed for hundreds of years. And then verse 10, the heavens are torn 
as God the Holy Spirit comes down to rest on God the, God, um, uh, God the Son. Absolutely huge news. Extraordinary. Now, as Mark carries on his account, he's going to give lots of evidence to show this is actually what happens. In lots of ways, this is just an introduction. It's just setting out the claim for us to read on and follow. Um, If you are someone looking into Christianity, there are free copies of Mark's Gospel at the back. It would be a great thing to read through. Don't just take my word for it or verse one's word for it. Actually, look at what happened when Jesus walked the earth. But if you're not yet sure whether it's worth it, maybe you think, okay, I can see it fits with the Old Testament, but that's just not relevant. After all, you don't read about this in our papers in Scotland. Are you sure it's really news? Isn't it, isn't it more the kind, of, you know, the kind of tabloid story, the, the alien abduction that someone heard of once? No, the arrival of Jesus is serious news content. Actually, I don't, I don't just say that because I'm a Christian. If you just think about it, the kind of impact that the man Jesus Christ has had on the, the history of civilization. Hard to argue that anyone's had more impact. It's amazing, isn't it? It just started with one guy shouting in the, in the desert. And look at the impact it had. I mean, that's well worth a reason just to have a read and check it out for yourself. How did this single Jewish man end up overturning world empires and whole philosophies? How was it that those words from that centurion standing below the limp body on the cross, surely this is the Son of God, how was it that people are still talking about that, that the empire of Rome has fallen, but the church of God has not? Mark would say it's because Jesus actually is the Messiah. He actually is the Son of God, the Savior King. It's great news that was pre-announced. Now, in a moment, we'll come to the end of our service where we are going to think more about Jesus Christ's death and what it means to trust in it. But to set that up uh, much more briefly, we're going to look at points three and four on the handout. Firstly, point three, I just want us to notice briefly... What kind of king is Jesus going to be? Because I think there are clues here, even at the start of Mark. You see, in lots of ways, um, verses 1 to 11, so many old promises of the Bible are finding their fulfillment in Jesus. Actually, I've only given us about, I don't know, five of the ten Old Testament prophecies that I would have loved to have talked about. Um, We had a sermon prep meeting this week where we were talking about some of them, and at some point someone said, you can't mention all of that, which I think is probably right. We don't want to be here all morning. Um, But actually, so many paths in Scripture, so many long-awaited promises are finding their climax in this one man, the King, the Son. He's actually come. God has turned up with that climax in verse 11. And let me ask you this, what would you expect someone that powerful to do next? We've heard he's, he's, uh, John wasn't even worthy to tie his sandals. We've heard that he's coming with all the power of the Holy Spirit. We've heard in verse 11 that he's the beloved son, the well-pleasing servant of God. What might you expect him to do next? The bigger king than Caesar. Maybe find his way to a palace flex his muscles, wield his authority, sit on his throne, assume his crown, get some people bowing in front of him. If you just knew Malachi, you'd expect fiery judgment to come. But instead of that, look what happens in verse 12. 
the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's a very strange moment. After this great announcement that he's the son, the king of Psalm 2, someone no less great than God's eternal son, the one with whom God is well pleased. Well, immediately he faces not adulation or worship, but isolation and temptation. Battle with Satan and danger. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. Such a strange moment. Why is the king not walking to Jerusalem? Why is he staying in the wilderness? It's actually the second strange moment in the passage. I wonder if you noticed as we were reading through. Reading through. The other strange moment is verse 9. Verse 9, when Jesus comes to John to be baptized. When you think about it, it's really strange. I wonder if you, if you know your Bible, whether you've ever wondered this question. Why did Jesus get baptized by John? After all, we know what John's baptism is about, verse 4. It's a baptism for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism for sinners, baptism to deal with sin. And yet one of the central claims from all the eyewitnesses of Jesus was that he never sinned, he never lied, never did anything wrong. Surely then he's the one person who doesn't need to get baptized by John. And you don't just take their assessment for it. Look at verse 11. This is God's own, God the Father's assessment. You're my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. Echoing Isaiah 42, the righteous servant, the, the faithful servant, the one guy who gets it right. So why is he getting baptized as a sinner? And then why is he in the wilderness being tempted? battling Satan alone rather than stepping onto a throne for his congratulations? Well, the answer in a nutshell is that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, did not step onto the planet to rule in power, but to serve in suffering. To put it in his own words, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his own explanation in Mark 10. I am the king. That comes just after his disciples have finally realized he's the Messiah, he's the king. He says, I am the king, but I'm the king not coming to claim my glory, my prestige, but I've come to serve. And how does he serve? He steps into our shoes. He steps into the shoes of sinners. He substitutes into our place. He's got no sin to repent of. He's got no sin to be baptized of, but he steps into our place. He doesn't have to be in the desert facing temptation, but that's the place Israel failed in their wilderness wanderings. And so he steps into their shoes, our shoes. It's marvelous. He puts his own comfort, his privileges, his security, his safety, he puts it behind him 
so that he can see people saved for eternity. It's actually exactly the attitude of Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Do you remember that? This is him. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And here's the king doing it. Here's the Lord Jesus putting his own advantage down that he might fight for our salvation, fight Satan on our behalf, the great enemy of God and humanity. It's absolutely marvelous. It's so marvelous. We'll think more about it next week with Remembrance Sunday. We'll spend a bit more time in these verses. But it is just a wonderful thing that that Jesus Christ, he didn't stay behind the clouds. He put on dusty sandals, stepped into our shoes, faced temptation, isolation. And of course, this is just a warm-up. It's just a prelude. It's just a skirmish before the real war on the cross when he really faces down temptation and Satan to die on our behalf, to pay for our sins. As he himself says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And this is why Christianity is not just news. It's not just big news. Bigger than the Caesars, it is good news. It is such good news. News is well worth bending over backwards to get out there. The news that whatever we've done, whatever you look back to in life with shame and, and think, I, just, I wish I could just wipe that out. I wish I could just blot that off my record. I could just, wish it could just be washed away. Well, Jesus Christ came to pay for it and to wash us clean by the Holy Spirit. It's marvelous news. And so it's news that demands a response. Let me read verses 14 to 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice it's the same message, uh, this this news message that we had in verse 1. God's kingdom is at hand because, of course, his king has turned up. Jesus is now here. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And it's a news announcement that demands a response. Repent and believe. That is, turn, do a U-turn, repent, and trust, believe in the gospel. Change what you're living for, change what you're trusting in, and trust in the Savior King, Jesus Now, I realize if if this is the first time you've ever heard this message, you may think, I need a bit more time to think about that. I want to take one of the Mark's Gospels and actually read through and check it out for myself. But there are many, well, there are a number of people here who have heard this message many times. And remember, it's not advice. It's not just a tip to make your life slightly better. This is a command from the king, an offer but also a command. Turn and trust in me, says Jesus Christ. That is, lay down our pride. Don't think that we can make it up to God, but trust in Jesus, who came to stand in our shoes, who lived the life we should have, died the death we deserved, that we might be forgiven before a holy God. If that is you, there'll be a chance to respond 
as we share in the Lord's Supper together in a moment. If that is you, I'd love to chat to you afterwards. Um, But for the moment, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for a king who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we pray whether this is the first time we're hearing of that, or we've heard that hundreds of times, we pray that you would move our hearts to marvel at your glorious good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.